and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when just about anything can happen, and tonight, it it seems to be breaking. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to prepare a show like this which is going to try in the next three hours to encompass something like 13.8 billion years. And one does not imagine that in that extraordinary stretch of time, there will be anything like breaking news, but there, there seems to be something going on with web that nobody ordered. You know, it's that old joke. Everybody looks around and they said, uh, who ordered this? Something is going on with web which frankly was not going on when I started preparing for this show with Chandra Wickramasinghe. And uh, I certainly didn't think it was going to continue to occupy some attention tonight as we're going to try to lay out from our perspective, which is I think a bit unique, why the Webb telescope is really the paradigm shifting, groundbreaking, um, uh, mold shattering, technological wonder that it is already uh, uh, tempting us to think that it might become. Um, Without getting into the details up front, toward the end of the show when we have laid, as the lawyers say, proper foundation, I'm going to uh, uh, bring up this new data because frankly, when I initially saw it, like everybody does, you know, if you're not used to looking at stuff day in and day out, you you look at something and your kind of attention is drawn somewhere else and the cat has to go out or someone has to go to the store or, you know, there are five phone calls that need your attention. So you kind of, you know, you kind of lose track. I had an email this afternoon from someone who is uh, very well placed in the UAP UFO community, um, has been working on exopolitics for many, many years. And he asked me a very simple question regarding some of the new web data. And as we were putting the final touches on what is going to be a very intensive imaging show tonight, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. I followed the directions of this individual who I've known for many years, and I went and looked at one of the latest releases from the web telescope data dump of a couple, three days ago. And I looked and I looked again. I did a double take because my initial assessment that what I had glanced at very briefly was just noise, the kind of shakedown that all new, very complex, very interrelated technologies go through, which is why you have what's called a commissioning uh, time interval protocol that basically when you build something brand new and half of it has never been, you know, created before and 90% of it's not supposed to work together uh, ever before. And you've done all this testing and spent all this money, but there's always, you know, uh, Murphy's law. So um, in the midst of the jubilation and excitement regarding the release of the uh, initial images, this particular set of images, this particular, there's actually two sets, came out a couple of days later and has not obviously received the kind of worldwide uh, approbation that the uh, initial release did. 
they kind of like, you know, slipped over the transom. And looking back in hindsight now, I'm wondering if NASA has not done this deliberately. Oh, my God. How many times have we said this? You know, you see a pattern and then you say, could there be something behind it? Could someone actually be directing this rather bizarre set of behaviors? Well, again, without being overly mysterious, it won't make sense until we get through some of the program tonight and I lay background. So without further ado, um, for those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, what I want you to do is to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. You're listening on some device, probably a smartphone. That smartphone can connect to the internet in multiple ways while you're listening. So you want to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. You want to click on tonight's banner, uh, which is at the top of the homepage for The Other Side of Midnight, which says rather grandly, The Coming Wonders of Web, How This Telescope Can Save Humanity. Now, I do not like hyperbole. I try not to uh, partake of it uh, whenever offered because it usually kind of goes down wrong. But I must say, even as we constructed the foundations of this show, which is I'm going to try to deal with the web telescope unveiling and experience from a whole new direction tonight that I guarantee you will not have heard and will not hear anywhere else. And as we go through the evening or morning, whatever the case may be, um, I may uh, drop a few personal uh, anecdotes in from time to time because I've been at this game, you know, space astronomy, NASA, the orbiting space telescopes, the generation of uh, astronomers able to leave the surly bonds of Earth and, and touch the face of God literally in terms of the origins of who we are, what we're all doing here, and how we figure it out. So as we, as we move through this process, um, the reason that this latest breaking news is so interestingly relevant to tonight's title is that it looks like, and again, this is just a mere first impression, that someone is advancing a timetable. And that won't mean anything, you know, in the beginning of the show and maybe by the middle it, it, it will. So let's, let's jump right in. Uh, you're on the homepage of the other side of midnight.com. You want to click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And under the guest page tonight, there is literally fast links to only one person. Moi, me, me, myself, and I, as my grandmother used to say. So click on that and that will take you to, uh, the images tonight. We have over 50 links and images to go through in three hours. Can we do it? Well, we're, we're going to try. Um, the whole web thing has been ongoing for over 20 years. In fact, when I looked up some dates uh, uh, this afternoon, you know, doing final prep, I realized that there was another, as uh, Contea's friend Bill used to say, quinky dinky, in the um, in the tumbleweeds, because it turns out that Webb has been an idea that has been on NASA's fevered little brain for much longer than 20 years. And when I saw how long they've been trying to do this, uh, beginning with the first discussions, the first general meetings at the space 
Telescope Science Institute there in Baltimore way back in 1989. You all remember where you were in 1989? I've been trying all afternoon. Where was I in 1989? Well, I think I was in, uh, in Berkeley, but I'm not so sure. I have to go and see my life has kind of been modulated by missions here, there, both personal and professional and space institutional, all that. So unless there's a kind of a mission to hang my hat against, I, I have to kind of do a little figuring. But yeah, 89 was the time when we were getting some really amazing imagery from a spacecraft called uh, 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 Mars Global Surveyor uh, down from Mars. In fact, that was when I had a very famous birthday party in a tent, literally a circus tent set up in a parking lot in um, uh, a Southern California town. Um, and uh, we showed some um, remarkable imagery, which had just been downlinked from Mars. We were all then, of course, focused on this strange place called Sidonia. Anyway, 89 is a long time. In fact, it turns out that it's 30 three years. Remember that number. So tonight what I want to do in terms of images, I'm going to give the number and then you'll go go on your smart device and you'll click on that image and you'll see uh, more detail. And sometimes if you click twice, it even gets bigger. Um, item number two is simply this, this remarkable telescope, which was launched over six months ago, literally on Christmas morning and has been sailing to its final halo orbit destination at the so-called L2 point, which is about a million miles behind the Earth away from the sun. And during that time, it has carried out all kinds of autonomous, robotic, and human-instructed commands uh, sent from very loving parents back here on Earth at the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute. And over those six months, the telescope has unfolded like a very high-priced, complicated piece of origami. And it has carried out all kinds of checks of instruments, of computers, of data file management systems, of redundant systems, of backup batteries, of solar panels, everything you can think of, uh, they have done as this spacecraft initially was en route to the L2 point. It took about, uh, uh, I think, a month and a half, two months, something like that, to get there. And they put on the brakes, and they fired little retro rockets, and it's now in this six-month-long halo orbit. It orbits the L2 point as we go around the sun, dragging the L2 point behind us in this gravitational uh, backwater. I mean, that's kind of really what it is. It's one of those dwell locations in a three-body system where things are kind of stable. And you can maintain that very lazy orbit, very remote from Earth and the uh, heat and other um, disturbances like radio transmissions, shortwave, people talking on their cell phones, all that good stuff. You're about a million miles away, and in that very leisurely orbit, you literally have half of the sky to examine. Why only half? Well, the thing that makes this telescope so different from any other of this scale that we have launched, there was IRAS, 
the Infrared Astronomical Observatory back in the 80s. There then was a telescope called Spitzer, which is named literally after the father at Princeton University of Space Astronomy, Lyman Spitzer. And we'll talk a bit about him later. And then there's Webb. And Webb by far outshines, if I can mix metaphors madly, both of those predecessors because it is by space standards huge, absolutely huge. It is, um, well, the actual mirror, remember the, the main driving force of a telescope is the device used to collect light, or in this case, infrared electromagnetic radiation. And there are two ways you can do it, with a lens, and there's limits on Earth to how big you can make lenses before they sag under gravity. Now, in space, of course, you don't have gravity, so you might say, well, why wouldn't you just simplify everything and make a telescope with a really big lens? And then, of course, the question is, how do you make such a, how do you polish it? How do you shape it? How do you, you know, develop its optical accuracy to literally millions of a wavelength of light? And so the much simpler technique, tried and true, which was begun here on Earth, you know, uh, at least 150 years ago, is to create big reflecting telescopes. Newton actually built one, um, and his was only six inches in diameter. Well, the primary mirror of the Webb Space Telescope, as you have heard me say again and again and again and again and again, because it really is amazing, it's 21 feet wide, 21 feet of mirror. Now, the largest telescope on Earth for decades and decades, up until basically the entrance into the 21st century, latter part of the 20th and the early years of the 21st, was the 200-inch mirror, the Grand Hale Telescope, named after George Ellery Hale, sitting on a mountaintop in Southern California called Palomar, which means dove, literally, woo, woo. Um, because it used to be heir to a lot of doves uh, in migration and in foraging and all that. So the Spaniards named it uh, um, Palomar, which means dove. Anyway, uh, Mount Palomar was chosen as the location for this remarkable telescope for its time frame. And in so many ways, as I began looking at this in terms of what is Webb going to mean, what is Webb going to do, to us, to our society, to our vision of the cosmos. In many ways, the more appropriate comparison I discovered was not with Hubble, previous uh, large space telescope working in the optical region, visible light with a bit of sensitivity in the very near infrared, beyond about 7,000 angstroms, which is deep, deep red to the human eye. I found that the comparison was more apt with the 200-inch, that's a 16-foot-wide mirror in case you're doing the conversion, that was built back in the 1940s and has been sitting on the top of Mount Palomar ever since. And the more I looked, the more the parallels became overwhelming. And then I found, as Arthur, as Alfred Hitchcock would say over and over again about movies, the MacGuffin, the thing everybody's looking for all throughout the film. Well, I found the MacGuffin that connects the 
Webb Space Telescope and my favorite telescope of all time on the planet, which is the 200-inch on Mount Palomar. And I'm going to describe in some detail how that telescope not only came to be my favorite, but that of a lot of other people. And the more I looked at this evidence, the more I looked at this data, the more I looked, you know, the web is an amazing place if you know how to use it. The dots really began to come together. And I now see, and I'm going to try to make the case during the next uh, three hours, minus about 15 minutes, that there is in fact a direct lineal heritage and descendancy and connection and long-term planning between the creation of the extraordinary Big Eye, the Hale Telescope on Mount Palomar, sitting over 6,000 feet above sea level there in Southern California, and the Webb Space Telescope tonight, uh, who's named after the uh, second very illustrious uh, administrator of NASA, the administrator, James Webb, who literally managed us within the Kennedy deadline before the Russians to and from the moon safely on every single flight. And if he'd only done that, that'd be something pretty amazing. But he shaped NASA in those early formative years, in the early 60s, because NASA was formed by President Eisenhower by an act of Congress in uh, July of 1958. Well, about that time, anyway, we will get into some interesting milestones and markers, and I'm hoping by the end of the evening, or if you're far west of us, the morning, that, um, uh, I'm sorry, east of, east of us, yeah, morning is east, morning is east, okay, uh, that you will see these dots and you will come to the conclusion based on the same evidence that I have, which is that nothing that we are seeing regarding Webb and in fact, regarding the American political experience right now, is divorced from some efforts on the part of some very influential people and institutions behind the scene to craft some kind of grand plan. And I think I can document that that grand plan involving the 200-inch telescope on Palomar is at least three-quarters of a century in the making and tonight we have breaking news well we'll get to the breaking news which is really interesting when you put it against this set of connections so everyone now click on item number three back in the 1940s and 50s when we didn't have you know wall-to-wall color television or hd or social media or twitter or the internet on um, what did we all do with ourselves oh my God, we had to actually read, we had to talk to each other, and we had to do it in this arcane fashion, face to face. Oh, perish the thought. Anyway, there were several major national magazines which basically stood in for the as-yet-to-be-born era of instant communication, instant coverage of anything you can imagine anywhere on the planet uh, electronically via the World Wide Web. And one of these major... Um, um, magazines was uh, uh, what, what should I call it? It was it was Collier's Magazine. Now you may have heard of the of the name Collier's uh, because uh, Collier's Magazine 
was very famous for publishing in the uh, 50s a series of paintings by a renowned space illustrator named Chesley von Stell. And it was the Collier series, which basically was uh, uh, trying to figure out how we would um, how how we would basically um, do this space thing in a big but professional way that kind of set the template for the coverage at that time of activities and research and interests off the planet. So, um, Collier's Magazine in 1948 published this rather remarkable issue. And as you can see from the headline on the cover, exclusive first photos through Palomar's giant eye. I mean, that kind of rings the bell, wouldn't you think? So if you now go to item number four, um, this is a color uh, cutaway drawing done by a brilliant uh, draftsman and engineer named Russell Porter, who was probably one of the key prime movers um, of creation of the world's biggest telescope from 1948 until the uh, early part of the 1990s. Um, and he he was able to, in a world before CAD and computers and, you know, three-dimensional virtual reality and all that good stuff, you know, think um, uh, Tony Stark in his most violent moments in his 3D imaging, he was able to put on paper and on drawing boards this extraordinary view, three-dimensional view of some of the most complicated engineering on the planet in that time frame in the uh, uh, 1930s and 1940s. So item number four is a color version of Russell Porter's infamous sketch of what the 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar was going to look like, drawn back when it was just a twinkle in the eye of a whole bunch of engineers and astronomers and dreamers who wanted bigger and bigger and bigger telescopes because basically a telescope is uh, a light bucket. It's designed to capture photons. It's designed to uh, basically um, just, you know, have as much area and collect as much electromagnetic radiation as possible, funnel it to various detectors. In those days, there was only one detector. Well, there were two. There was the human eyeball, which still in the 21st century is very useful. And then there was film. Remember film? Literally film, gelatin film, glass plates, developer, dark rooms. Oh, don't turn the light on, that kind of thing. So all before electronics. So this incredible telescope was popularized by a whole bunch of science magazines and, as you'll see, the mainstream press of the era as the latest extraordinary wonder of the world. And it was. The hype for the 200-inch, as I went back through these archives in the last several days, um, and, and kind of connected with some of my own memories, because I was just a little wee toddler when this was all going on. Um, but I remember little flashes, and I, I now kind of realize where my almost obsession with the 200-inch um, over decades came from. It came from the fact that in this time frame, 
from the 30s through the 50s and 60s, the closest thing to a citizen participation space program that Americans had was connection to the folks that were manning the telescopes on lonely remote mountaintops all over the world with the 200 inch on Palomar in the late 40s and 50s and 60s leading the way as the most sophisticated and largest telescope on earth, which of course takes me to number five because that's kind of what I, in my mind's eye, look like and I think back because it was the origin of this deep, passionate love and concern and, well, let's say it, maybe even verging on obsession with the role of astronomy and space to um, uh, basically determine where we are and who we are. Hang on one second, guys. We will take a short break. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many times must a man up before? He can see the sky. Yes, before you can hear people cry. Yes, how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend. Is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. There are a lot of big mysteries. 
that get us up in the morning. What's the origin of the universe? There was, after all, the Big Bang. But what created the Big Bang? Where this time starts. to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, January, January, July 17th, 2022. We are having some technical problems in the background, nothing that would be a showstopper for our live stream, but uh, Blog Talk is not responding very well tonight, so we're trying to fix it while simultaneously carrying on with the program. And I kind of thought this music is apropos of what's going on. Welcome to the wild, wild west. One of my favorite shows, by the way. Don't go away. We'll return momentarily after we try to fix what's not maybe going right.
as I was saying, you know, you you love it. This is one of the nights when Keith had to do, take care of a personal situation, so he's not minding the store except by remote social media. And it's very hard sometimes to fix things um, when you're not literally in front of the right console at the right time. So, oh, here we go again. I'll tell you what. Let me try this. And... Uh, we shall we shall return don't go away Welcome back, everyone. You know, there are some people that have earned reputations for being miracle workers. Keith is literally tens of miles from any place where you can do anything, and he somehow was able to fix it. So now we're going out on the stream, and we're on Blog Talk, and uh, all I have to do is wrap my head around anomalies that happen when people are not home. So let's see, where was I? Um... Let me fade this down and resume what I was going to say. You're on the other side of midnight.com and you're looking at the guest page tonight, which is all about web. And as I was saying before, we were kind of so rudely interrupted. I now realize looking back on all the media that was surrounding me as I was growing up, inundating me and millions of other people with the extraordinary opportunities and potentials of this wonder of the world, this 200-inch telescope uh, on Mount Palomar. In fact, that's item number six. You can see some of the press. It was, there were, there were no holes barred. Um, you know, it, this coverage was not only in the science magazines, uh, like you can see on uh, number seven. That's an artist's view of the, kind of a bird's eye view of visitors looking over the edge of the parapet from outside the dome of the 200-inch. And the observer, the astronomer, literally, this telescope was so big that he could literally ride inside at the top at what was called the observer's cage. And there's this artwork showing uh, the astronomer with his back to the crowd outside, some of them looking down at the mirror, many, 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 you know, uh, hundreds of feet below. Um, he's oblivious because he's, he's basically working with observing, and of course he is changing plate holders. He is using film to record the night sky. Anyway, Popular Mechanics did an extraordinary extravaganza of various uh, reportage and stories and uh, you know developing coverage as the telescope was developed over literally decades because um, there was something kind of consequential that intervened in between the time that was planned and the time that it was actually, you know, fully functional, which was on uh, June 3rd when they did the dedication of 1948. Anyway, number eight, it shows you that the media coverage was very wide and very sophisticated. This is, I believe, a um, frontispiece from a piece in The New Yorker 
which shows the telescope in pastels. And the kind of cool thing about this is that it has people in the foreground for size comparison. I mean, this was a behemoth. It still is. And it weighed, if you look at all the trunnions and the truss work and the horseshoe mount with the oil pads that allowed it to frictionlessly move from place to place in the sky, it weighed over 500 tons. The Webb Space Telescope weighs seven tons, seven tons, and it can see to the edge of the observable universe. And the Hale Telescope, because it was earthbound with the atmosphere and its size, um, cannot. So that's how far we have come in three quarters of a century where we can put an independent, almost self-contained spaceship containing a 21-foot mirror, place it a million miles away from the Earth in the L2 point, uh, talk to it, you know, with radio and microwave and S-band and all that, you know, high-speed stuff, and it's functioning perfectly, and it only weighs uh, about two SUVs together. That's all, as opposed to 500 tons, and that's, of course, not counting the thousand tons of dome that was required, is required here on Earth to protect a fragile telescope with delicate optical surfaces and instrumentation from suffering the vagaries of terrestrial weather. Okay, moving on. Number nine. Um, I was, as I, as I kept researching, going back and looking at these parallels between all the hype around the 200-inch and the hype around Webb, um, I, I found this. Number nine is a, is a comic book, the cover of a comic book. Again, note the scale of people compared to the, the telescope. And it was designed to appeal to exactly the age group that I was when these comics were put out. There was a broad front social educational program in the United States from the 30s through the 40s through the 50s to basically make people cognizant and aware of the value of science, even science as remote and distant as distant stars and galaxies that were thousands or millions of light years away. And some of that can be seen in the headlines that we grabbed from local papers all around uh, uh, the uh, nation in this time frame. Big Bertha of Sky will aid science. That was one headline. This from the Richmond News Leader, Giant Telescope in Use. And this one from the Something Daily, Gigantic Telescope for Site Near Mount Wilson. We'll talk about Mount Wilson shortly. And then another one, Lens Will Lift Bale of Heavens, Value Forecast by Record, Boundless Space or Closed Universe, what giant telescope may reveal. So the questions and the shape of the discussion around the Hale reflector, the giant Hale 200-inch telescope named after the guy who uh, uh, raised the money and designed it and put all the team together, George Ellery Hale, and we'll uh, talk about him a little more in, in, in a bit. It was those questions which have not diminished. They've only accelerated in the decades uh, that have passed since the 200-inch telescope was, you know, conceived, designed, and actually um, put into practice. Number, number 15 is one of my favorites. This is from a movie that was um, produced 
and directed by a very famous Hollywood science fiction producer, George Pal. It's frankly one of my favorite period sci-fi movies from the period because it, its title says it all. When worlds collide, what would humanity do if it discovered there was a body, an errant extrasolar system object streaking at many miles per second from interstellar space to cross the solar system and with its gravitational fields and ultimately with its physical presence would basically uh, wind up destroying uh, the earth and all of humanity on it. What would, what would governments do? What would religious institutions do? What would people do? Well, this film really de- deals with that in a very elegant way. And in the opening scenes, there is this contract pilot who's been hired as a courier to go to an observatory in South Africa, which at the time was one of the major astronomical centers of the, of the planet. The Lowell Observatory had close connections with an observatory at uh, Bloemfontein in South Africa for years and years and decades of Mars work. So the idea of South Africa as a bastion of technological excellence in the southern hemisphere. Remember, telescopes can only see from the hemisphere that you build them in. And there was a lot of discussion at one point of actually building a, a, a mirror image, pun intended, a twin of the 200-inch somewhere in the southern hemisphere. And South Africa was one of those places that was kind of floated around. Well, anyway, this film, When Worlds Collide, has a scene very close to the opening where this pilot, this courier, is supposed to land in a private plane. He's a private airline aircraft pilot. Pick up a box of film, negatives. It's literally chained to his wrist, you know, like some, you know, um, enormously expensive bank draft or, you know, a box containing platinum or gold rubies and stuff like that. And he flies it to the United States to another set of astronomers who are looking over the data and it's from their analysis that the decision is made. Yes, there's something coming. It's going to collide with the earth, but it has a satellite. It has a a planet orbiting it, this interloper star. And so this extraordinary plot line is hatched to use industry and to create a migration vessel, a rescue craft to take a handful of humanity from the earth, which is going to be destroyed and set it down on the surface of this other world, which it turns out from remote sensing data, spectroscopy and all that is like another earth. It's habitable. And so that's the core of the film. And there's a lot of interesting, you know, byplay and character and all that through it. But what's interesting to me was that the outside scenes of this observatory in South Africa is a twin of the 200-inch on Mount Palomar, which was in in first years of its incredible um, professional existence when this film was made in the mid-50s. Not only that, if you look at 16, there were scenes shot inside of astronomers looking at this data, obviously concerned about the coming collision and all that. And in the background, you can see, obviously, a matte photograph of the 200-inch hail reflector on Mount Palomar, magically transported to this mythical observatory in South Africa. So the, the iconic image, the 
professional branding around this telescope on Palomar was so extensive and so deep that there was almost no part of the culture that it did not reach. And in the early years, in the in the 30s and 40s, uh, when it was still, you know, a, a twinkle, there was a lot of construction, but the actual centerpiece, which was the mirror, had to wait like 11 years for World War II to come and go before uh, construction of this giant telescope could resume. So with this 11 and a half year hiatus, when nothing could be done to build this telescope that George Ellery Hale wanted to, as his crowning achievement. I mean, here's a guy who, and we'll get into more details later, but he in his career literally um, designed and financed by raising the funds from private entrepreneurial sources, uh, angels, multi, multi-millionaires, uh, billionaires didn't exist yet. And he was incredibly successful at raising enormous amounts of money. For instance, in equivalent dollars, the Hale telescope, the 200 inch in 1948 cost about $15 million. That was the budget. If you look at inflation, which is about 12 and a half uh, times the, the, uh, uh, you know, value of money back then, that's close to $200 million, which is not cheap. Now you contrast that to the idea that Webb cost $10 billion and you can see why this miracle a million miles behind us tonight is working. It shows that if you have enough money and you have enough brilliant people and you can hire them and keep them focused on the task at hand, almost nothing is impossible. You know the old cliche that you can't solve a lot of problems by simply throwing money at it? Wrong! The web experience demonstrates exactly that if you can throw enough money at the most amazing technological problems, they can be solved. Anybody in the global climate community uh, kind of paying attention? Because really it's a matter of resources, a matter of direction of funds and attention. Anyway, uh, as part of this national campaign to inculcate the love of this telescope, the 200 inch, and all that it stood for, all that it implied in the form of cutting edge revolutionary science and peering, you know, millions of light years, uh, if not deeper into space. Remember, the dethronement of the Earth from the center of the galaxy to just one star system orbiting around the Milky Way in about 240 million years was relatively recent. That only came about uh, per the work on Mount Wilson back in the 1920s. So it was like a generation had gotten used to the idea that distances in space are really, really, really big. And our galaxy is only one of millions or billions or even more. So in this environment, they did all kinds of very imaginative, out-of-the-box thinking to get the people kind of on board. And remember, this was done solely without a penny of public funds. This was all private foundations and people like Carnegie and Rockefeller and railroad builders and oil drillers and all that. There wasn't a single dime of taxpayer money, and yet there was this cultural-wide, nationwide, citizen-wide effort to bring everybody up to speed as to why this was the 
neatest thing since sliced bread. So you see there in number 17, this, you know, extraordinary scale model uh, with the uh, uh, curator kind of leaning over and I guess pointing at uh, uh, one part of it. You can see the scale of the dome and the telescope by the formation of the little people in front of the entrance. So everything was built to scale. Uh, item 18, um, the Corning uh, Glassworks Company in Corning, New York, became the heart of the 200-inch project. They were able to create the mirror. They were tasked by Hale with creating something that had never existed on Earth, a mirror over 16 feet wide that when it was exposed to atmospheric perturbations, to sunlight, to thermal stresses, whatever, would maintain its figure regardless of what the average outside temperature was or the temperature of the mirror itself. And they actually went to a very exotic material for that time, and we'll get to that momentarily. The model making didn't stop. This is, uh, if you look at 19, this is a um, um, Lexan plastic, transparent plastic model, as you can see by the size of the uh, guy standing to the right, that was sent around to schools and used to illustrate the uh, the uh, light rays, as the, they call it, ray tracing. And this appeared on the cover of Life magazine. There was no element of American media or American news or reporters or editorialship or magazines, public interest, scientific, uh, popular, uh, whatever. They all were extolling the extraordinary potentials of this soon to be, I mean, they thought in the 30s it was going to happen just in a couple, three years. Turned out it had to wait a long time, had to wait over 11 years. There were even, and again, keep in mind, this was a totally private project, but the U.S. government, the Postal Service, the USPS got involved and struck a commemorative stamp showing the dome and the uh, telescope inside with the slit um, uh, covers opened. And I always love those little winglets on the bottom of the uh, uh, covers that rolled aside and allowed the telescope to see the sky. Somebody, I, it was Porter, I, I really think. As far as I can tell, they had no normal, uh, you know, practical function, but they just looked so cool. And this stamp was issued to all the citizens that might be sending letters. Notice in terms of this price, you get all that for three cents. Oh, and then they went further. There were what are called in the philately industry, uh, philatelists or stamp collectors. There is this whole arcane subculture called um, philatelists and they specialize in something called first day covers. That is an envelope but it's printed, struck with some kind of commemorative, carries the stamp uh, that would have been approved and licensed by the Postal Service. And they basically are, are um, canceled, hand canceled, as a way of memorializing forevermore that the person was attending this event or was part of this dedication or part of this uh, ceremony. And in fact, we, we did some first day covers of our own way back when I was borrowing ships like the QE2, and we uh, deposited one literally 
in a bottle somewhere between Barbados and Jamaica, I think, in the Caribbean Sea. And it could still be floating around the world because nobody's picked it up, opened the bottle, taken out the piece of paper, and sent us in this era of social media uh, way back from the 1970s uh, any notification that they found our literal message in a bottle. But we had first-day covers struck for the voyage um, that would memorialize and, and kind of mark a, a data point in history if someone ever found our uh, note. Um, as I was going through this, I realized that if anybody was on the ball, they should do the same thing for the Webb Space Telescope. And lo and behold, um, a couple of minutes searching, and I found that indeed, at the end of this year, in December of this year, marking one year from the launch of the web from French Guiana there in uh, South America on Christmas morning, the U.S. Postal Service is literally deploying a new postage stamp in commemoration of the James Webb Space Telescope. So that link takes you directly to all the background information. Uh, they will come in sheets. They'll be a standard price. I forget what it is because the price of stamps has set, gone up a bit from uh, three cents. And item number 23, this branding, this trying to penetrate the common person's mind to get people at all ages and all levels to kind of be in sync with the idea of new frontiers, space frontiers, telescopes seeing to the dawn of time, all of this good stuff through the 200-inch Mount Palomar telescope, they actually created a patch, just like space missions, you know, the Apollo, the Mercury, the Gemini, all had patches. Well, the crew and the citizens who could buy them in the gift store uh, surrounding Mount Palomar literally had their own patch, and you could wear it. Now, I don't remember, God, this is so many years ago, whether I you know, went to the trouble of actually getting one of those, um, but I was fascinated that NASA has simply continued these remarkable traditions in a very, very interesting way uh, off the planet and into a domain where you really can see to the edge of forever. Okay, 24 is the guy behind this extravaganza, not only the one on the Earth, but by metonymy, kind of indirectly, uh, for Webb itself. George Ellery Hale was a rich kid uh, born of a, a businessman in Chicago, uh, his parents doted on him for his passion for science. Uh, he and his brother actually were able to convince their mom to set up a whole spare bedroom where they conducted chemistry experiments and uh, built turbines and all kinds of you know mechanical things. And that's when he developed his passion for astronomy. And Hale would go on to design and raise funds and wind up completing the background, the institutional frame, for four of the largest telescopes at that time on the planet. The 40-inch Yerkes Refractor, which is up in uh, Wisconsin, and then the 60-inch telescope on Mount Wilson, which is a big reflector, the 100-inch uh, telescope on Mount Wilson, which is an even bigger reflector with a mirror, which is 100 inches or eight feet and change, and you can see Mount Wilson there in 25. This is an old postcard from the, from the time frame. 
this is kind of what you see as you fly into LA. If you're flying in from the east, which is the general flyway, it will take you down the flight corridor to land uh, on the main runways there at LAX. If you're about 10 minutes out and you look to your right, you'll see the, the mountains to your right and you'll see this little cluster of white domes and buildings and a couple of very tall towers. That's the Mount Wilson Observatory, which was all convolved together in one institution uh, with Mount Palomar in the 1960s. And so they're now all jointly managed by the same folks at uh, Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, which was one of the uh, institutions that George Ellery Hale actually created. I mean, this guy was astonishing in what he was able to uh, pull off without government resources, literally from passing around the hat in this very elite circle of professional business people and entrepreneurs. And he was able to raise the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars privately, um, all in, in the uh, uh, you know, service to building these extraordinary instruments, which are literally, as someone once said, the engines of creation. So if you look at 26, this is one of the amazing things that uh, George's uh, verve and energy and passion and uh, dedication built. It's the 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson. It has been there since uh, uh, 1917, and we're kind of reaching a stopping point here. So we probably should um, take a pause, and we will turn to uh, the next part of this extraordinary adventure, when we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're telling the story of Webb from some very, very deep foundations. It all connects as you're going to find out. Of 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Greeting to, eventually, the way the clock runs, Monday morning. We're going over the extraordinarily deep iceberg roots of what has now matriculated into the uh, seventh or maybe eighth wonder of the world, the Webb Space Telescope, which, of course, is not in the world. It's a million miles away tonight, taking extraordinary data, some of which is really, really head-scratching. And we will get to that um, shortly, okay? So back to our narrative. Um, Let's see, where was I? Let me do this and then that and, okay. So if you go back to the other side of midnight.com and you're on the uh, guest page, number 26 shows you the extraordinary uh, uh, Herculean efforts that George Ellery Hale was able to put into raising money for cutting-edge technology a la the 19, well, the, the teens, the 20s, and beyond. In fact, it was so emblematic uh, of the time. Again, this is a very long legacy that you can see that the opening of the telescope um, actually conflicted, if you can use that term, with a major geopolitical event going on uh, in Europe at that time, which was, of course, World War I. And the Kaiser was the enemy, and we were, you know, not yet into the war. We were, we were going to get into the war in April. Well, the telescope actually came online in November of the same year that the U.S. entered the war. And what was so interesting, at least to me, is that the watchword around the technology represented by the telescope is exemplified by this political cartoon. Because what you see is the business end the eyepiece and the spectroscopes of the period and all that uh, behind Lady Liberty there. And on the, on the barrel of the telescope, which is a very large traditional kind of telescope, it says instruction. And then out the slit, out the opening through which the telescope look, um, it says destruction. And there's a cartoon figure of the Kaiser uh, with his cannons and mortars and you know, other weapons of war etc etc so in the public mind we were being conditioned in this time frame to view this technology as peaceful and as advancing humanity as opposed to that of our enemies overseas and abroad who were dedicated to do things that were not peaceful and definitely not advancing the um, uh, boundaries of, of humanity and does that kind of ring a bell anyway um Building these extraordinary instruments, and I want you to click on number 28 now, if you look really closely, and if you know the little trick of uh, holding down the uh, uh, control button and scrolling with your mouse either forward or back, I think it's back to make the image bigger, you'll see on the side of the mount what's called the yoke, which is those straight pieces between the two drum-like things uh, at an angle, top and bottom, with the telescope kind of in between, pointed straight up, you'll see what are, and you'll you'll probably say to yourself, no, I can't be, rivets. Yes, those are rivets. Because the technology to push back the boundary of outer space in this time frame literally came from the shipbuilding industry. Big steel, the Titanic, like the SS United States in the 1950s, like the Queen Elizabeth, uh, and the Queen Mary and the, the French, uh, you know, ships 
or the Italians. All of them had developed the technology for building big things out of iron and steel, and they put them together with rivets. Well, hail to build the biggest movable scientific instruments the world had ever known. And they had to be so delicately mounted that a little child's hand touching the, the, the yoke could literally turn the telescope, even though it weighed over 100 tons by hand. It could be positioned because it was floating on two pools of liquid mercury, which is what in both of those drums at top and bottom of the uh, so-called uh, northern, northern axis. That technology, that uh, um, legacy of development of, of uh, fabricating steel and putting big structures out of steel together came directly from the shipbuilding industry. In fact, the, the contract to build the mount, all of the appurtenances that hold the precious mirror and direct it optically through other mirrors and ultimately wind up getting it to a detector, in this case, a photographic plate, all of that background for building this entire extraordinary um, leap forward technologically was drawn directly from the shipbuilding industry. And the contract to build the mount was literally uh, let to a, a private uh, shipbuilding firm in Quincy, Massachusetts, called the FORE, F-O-R-E, Shipbuilders. And they, in fact, built professionally for the U.S. Navy battleships in the teens and 20s and 30s. So in the teens, Hale gave them the contract to build the mount for the largest then projected telescope on the surface of the planet, the famed 100 inch. Moving on, number 30. The heart of any telescope is the mirror. And as you can see in this side-by-side uh, -side comparison, there's something kind of weird about the 200-inch telescope mirror, the 100-inch, which is half the size, was cast out of basically uh, wine glass, green, dyed, doped with metallic ions, wine glass, the same kind of glass that St. Gobans in France used to make wine bottles. They put a lot of it together, many, many, you know, tens of tons. They melted it, which is very high temperature, even for plate glass, 1,500, 2,000 degrees, something like that, Fahrenheit. And they would basically cast a disc, and then they would examine it optically and see if there were imperfections, like stress cracks. And several mirrors in, in the effort to build the 100-inch, literally when they were being cooled after being poured in what's called an annealing process, where you basically have the temperature lowered just a bit each day. These are gas-fed burners that keep the glass molten, and then slowly the energy is withdrawn. The temperature falls, and the glass goes from uh, molasses, which glass doesn't really ever melt. It becomes like silly putty. It kind of is blobby and will conform to any shape you put it in. Anyway, uh, after they broke a couple of these, they went back to the first one that had been rejected by the opticians on uh, Mount Wilson, and they were able to salvage it, and it turns out to have been a perfectly amazing mirror for the 100-inch. It's still in use today. Um, they removed many years ago the coating of silver that these mirrors used to be coated with to reflect light, and now, like the uh, Palomar 200-inch telescope, 
and most major telescopes all over the planet, um, they're, they basically are put in a vacuum chamber and a little aluminum is vaporized and the aluminum coats the cold surface of the glass, forming an incredibly smooth and precise within millions of an inch parabolic curve and thereby you get a light collector on the order of eight feet or in the case of the 200 inch, 16 feet wide. Now, the Webb telescope mirror is radically different. As you can see, if you just kind of uh, shift your attention to the, to the right. I put these two side by side to show how technology has really changed in the last several years because it turns out that um, the best shape for mirrors in space is not a glass, solid glass uh, paraboloid. It is what's called a segmented mirror, where each of the separate 18 segments, uh, which are over four feet in diameter, are in a hexagonal form with six sides. And they all fit together. And behind them, there are motors and little sensors and a, an array of very sophisticated electronics that moves them and tilts them and even pushes up in the center to change the radius of curvature. So ultimately, in the modern 21st century era of the web, you don't build one huge mirror, you build a bunch of smaller ones and you fit them together so precisely with such optical precision in terms of the engineering and the uh, mounts and the articulation motors and the pistons and all that good stuff that they literally function together as one integrated giant mirror. And that is the, the technological advance that we have made in three quarters of a century. And that's why, by the way, uh, the web weighs a fraction of the 500 tons of the um, uh, 200 inch itself. In fact, the mirror, the 200 inch mirror made out of uh, Pyrex, and we'll get to that in a minute, weighs twice, twice the weight of the entire Webb Space Telescope, just the mirror. Because even though it was made of glass with ribbing, meaning there were huge um, empty um, uh, honeycomb in the back to reduce the weight, it still had enough glass, enough Pyrex left, so that it weighs about 14 and a half tons, which is, as you can tell, uh, more than all of the uh, Hubble weighs together. So let's, let's go to the mirror, number 31. This is an artist sketch again from the incredibly elaborate branding and um, uh, media savvy dissertation of all kinds of information to the general public from astronomers on mountaintops all over the world, particularly George Hale and his uh, coterie of people there in Mount Wilson and at Caltech to bring the public up to speed on every arcane aspect of building the world's largest telescope. So what you see here in an art you know, portrayal is the guys who actually had the hardest, dirtiest, and most dangerous job of any in building this incredible behemoth. They had to light a fire with gas jets underneath. They had to bring Pyrex, which is basically uh, a, pyro, a, a borosilicate glass developed by Corning uh, commercially back in the mid-teens. Uh, in 1915, the first commercial products uh, like um, pie pans and measuring cups and plates and all that 
were developed by Corning um, to resist incredible temperatures that could go, as they would claim, directly from the oven to your table. That kind of thing. This is before microwaves, of course. So when when um, Hale was trying to imagine how he would create a telescope twice the size of the 100-inch on Mount Wilson, and remember, the mass goes up not as the square of the, of the area of a telescope's mirror, which is its area, its light-collecting surface, but as the cube, because you're talking about mass, three-dimensional engineering, three-dimensional mirrors, three-dimensional motors and struts and connectors and all that. So the bigger the telescope gets, the more out of sight the total weight and the expense and the complexity of making it move seamlessly and perfectly smoothly across the sky to track and follow objects, you know, millions of light years distant as the Earth tries to rotate the object out of the field of view of the telescope. So it all came down to the mirror. Well, Hale, after, you know, kind of re uh, living the experience of the 100-inch, thought he would try something different, which was this new material that was only like two or three years old, borosilicate glass, better known to all the housewives in the 1940s and 50s as Pyrex. And so he commissioned Corning to develop a 200-inch, 16-plus-foot-wide mirror made out of something that barely had reached the marketplace just a few months before. And you can see in the artist diagram, and then you can see in practicality with actual long-term exposure photograph in number 32, this is the actual pouring of the uh, Pyrex glass in the mold, which is the bottom of that kind of igloo-shaped structure, which is glowing from the heat. Because in order to melt borosilicate, in order to make it go soft and runny and kind of molasses-like, you need to heat it to over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that now tells you why the guy is standing way far back with a very long ladle. He is wearing a thermal protection, and he's got a faceplate that because his hands are full, he's literally biting down on a bite board on the back of the faceplate and holding it in front of his face as he gets close to the opening in the furnace, otherwise 3,000 degrees of radiating, ravening temperatures will literally kill him in seconds. So these guys really put it on the line, and this was a process that took months and months and months and then years cooling gently, like a half a degree per day, down from 3,000 degrees. You do the math. In order that you would get a final mirror that would not have strains, would not have some kind of internal stresses that would basically make it obsolete and would cause it to crack when the uh, engineers began to try to polish it into first a sphere and then to a paraboloid. Now, if you look down at number 33, this is a very famous pre-Walter Cronkite person. Uh, I met Lowell Thomas once. Uh, he was, of course, you know, uh, getting up there in years when I was working with Cronkite. But he was the Cronkite of his day from the teens to the 20s and the 30s. Lowell Thomas traveling the world, anchoring news. He's there working, obviously, for NBC. The media of the time, the electronic media, the red and blue networks, which were the equivalent of the, you know, international television networks of today. But this was all radio. This was not television. 
they literally had specials on the pouring of the Pyrex at Corning, New York. And Lowell Thomas is there reading a script, narrating the whole process on live radio. That's how deeply immersed the country was in the fabrication and construction and research objectives of the 200-inch. Very, very similar, if not identical, if you take away television, social media, and um, Elon Musk and Twitter, to what's going on right now. Because the media played a huge role in getting people used to the idea of being part of something bigger than themselves, something as big as the universe, asking questions which were as deep as time and as wide as history. And Lowell Thomas and a lot of other reporters and correspondents and newspaper editors all over the country without really being told, because I I can't track down any memos that say, you will do this, you will do that. No, there was this groundswell of extraordinary interest in the objective, which was to create a device that could peer further back in time, now that we realized in those formative years that the universe was incredibly ancient in time, not just a few thousand years old or a few million, but billion. I mean, the estimate at that time was around 2 billion years. Oh, have we grown in those decades since. Anyway, so this kind of interest and obsession and and fascination with the telescope matriculated to the fact that Corning, once they got this mirror cooled down, took them over a year before it was cool enough to basically be packaged, put on a railway car, and transported, took them 16 days to go from Corning, New York, by rail through various, you know, side, various railroad companies, because there wasn't one railroad in the country. There were all kinds of different railways, so they had to get right away from all the individual companies, and traffic had to be diverted. There had to be security. Um, Anyway, that all took about two weeks, and in all that time, the country was fascinated, riveted, watching kind of in real time on nightly radio broadcasts and by remote, you know, reporters standing by the tracks as the train carrying the heart and soul of the 200-inch telescope went zipping by. And you can see that in 35. This is one of the stops where, you know, railroads needed to refuel. They had to take on water. So every time uh, they would stop, a crowd would gather because this was a national thing. This was part of their yearning to figure out why are we here? It was part of that philosophical gestalt of funding instruments. And again, this was all privately funded that the public could participate in if by no other means than following the technology as it was assembled into something that had never existed on Earth before. Number 36 shows you the finished mirror. Now, this is 11 years after the previous picture because a little thing happened between the plans, create the mirror, truck it by train out to California, polish it in the optical uh, shop of the uh, California Institute of Technology, take it up the mountain and put it in the uh, mechanical steel elements of the truss and and, uh, uh, mirror-containing cell of the 200-inch. Eleven and a half years. That little thing was, of course, World War II. 
No work was done because all of the opticians and astronomers and anybody with a faint technical bent was pressed into war work and was producing weapons and optical instruments and you know devices to to basically further the effort uh, so that we ultimately won against Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, and the, and the Japanese. But notice this mirror. Notice those weird geometric patterns. Those are below the surface. The surface of the glass is perfectly smooth, the pyrex, but these deep indentations, these geometric indentations radically reduce the weight. I mean, if it had been a solid disc, it would have been too heavy to mount or to use because it would have bent under its own weight. But by making it a lightweight honeycomb structure, again, another one of, of Hale's incredible innovations, not only to use Pyrex, but then to divide it in such a way that the resulting mirror was only a fraction of the mass of the uh, uh, 100-inch over on uh, Mount Wilson. All of this, I believe, kind of goes to the heart of why Americans really took this whole journey with the mirror, vicariously, from New York to Southern California, to Pasadena, to the optical shops of Caltech, because they felt they had a piece of the action. The branding, the media coverage, the reporting, the Sunday supplements, the detailed articles, the glossy diagrams and photographs and the lyrical writing of astronomers like like Hale. I mean, Hale could really write. All brought the American people along at a time when not one penny of tax dollars was going into any of this. This was purely Americans looking at this project and feeling this incredible philosophical kinship because it was going to be on a high mountain looking up into infinity and asking for answers, seeking the resolution of questions going back to the beginning of time, like, why are we here? Uh, number 37. This is now the mirror in the optical shop um, at Caltech. You can see that it's just, it's gorgeous because if you put the lights, you know, uh, properly arrayed, the, the glass scatters blue and the, and the uh, indentations on the back bring light very close to the surface from the back if it's illuminated that way. And of course there were machines and opticians and they spent like a year polishing this, but they really couldn't get into action until the end of World War II. So the actual work on the mirror was begun in 1946. And it took them a year until late 1947. Is that familiar, 1947? before they had a functioning working mirror, which, uh, you know, lived up to all of their really extraordinary expectations. Now, again, the shot number 38, if you look at item number 38, this is an actual photograph taken of the dedication ceremony where a whole bunch of dignitaries and the people who worked on it and the technicians and the mayor and the governor and, and um, you know, all kinds of high political mucky mucks were all assembled by Hale and his team to celebrate the dedication on June 3rd, 1948, over 10 years after the ceremony was originally designed in Hale's mind's eye. Because one of the really interesting quinky dinkies is that Hale planned to unveil this telescope in 1939. 
not in almost 1949, 10 years later. 1939, 19, why does that ring a bell? Oh yes, 39, twice 19.5. Keep that number in mind. Okay, number 39 itself. That's a very good timing, Bill. When the telescope was finally commissioned, and in January of 1949, literally 10 years uh, after its original um, design date for operation, a guy named Edwin Hubble. Remember him? Edwin Hubble, whose only real claim to fame is he took the data from Lowell Observatory and kind of massaged it and did further research. And so the Hubble constant is known uh, after Hubble, the expansion of the universe, the galaxies rushing away in every direction and quasars and all the stuff out there. And now, of course, we found out that the acceleration is increasing. It's not a linear velocity slowing so that eventually the Big Bang becomes a big crunch when everything kind of smushes back together in untold billions of years. Um, Hubble determined with the Mount Wilson technology that the, um, that the universe, all galaxies apart from the local cluster, appear to be receding from us at increasing velocity with increasing distance, a kind of a direct relationship of the so-called Doppler effect where uh, light frequencies change uh, depending upon whether the source is going away or coming toward you. And the guy there in the photograph in 39 was the guy who basically accomplished for the 200 inch what Webb has accomplished in literally a week. Because at the time that the telescope was unveiled, at the time that astronomers began using it and taking deep, deep fields and all kinds of astronomical measurements, they were basically limited to black and white film. And there was nothing more boring even to an interested public in astronomy than another picture with a whole bunch of white speckled dots out of which they could discern no you know, practical value. It's just another black and white picture of the sky. I mean, if you wanted a black and white picture of the sky, you go outside at night and just look up. So it wasn't until 10 years later in 1958 that the guy there, who I actually was able to meet, he was an extraordinary uh, gentleman named William Miller, who had an extraordinary avocation apart from his astronomy. And he was a cutting edge astronomer at the Carnegie Wilson Observatory uh, Consortium. Um, he loved to do citizen archeology. span He would you know, pack a tent and camping gear and jump into a Jeep and run all over the Southwest in the Jeep and he found all kinds of amazing things hidden all over the Southwest. I mean, he was telling me stories that I had no background to potentially even begin to fathom. And I sure wish that he was with us now. Anyway, we are at the bottom of the hour. And so I think as all due deference to the uh, tyranny of the clock, we should probably take a break. You're on the other side of midnight. I'm trying to limb out now the foundation for this extraordinary revolution, which I think, and I think I can document in the next uh, uh, hour, hour and a half. This telescope, the Webb telescope, is going to change our very lives. Everyone listening to my voice, all those that will hear it you know, on the internet, by becoming subscribers, will hear snippets of it anywhere in the world, because we're all over the world in 190 some countries. 
they will understand by the end of the program, yes, this telescope has the capacity to literally change the destiny of human beings. And how? Well, we're going to talk about that in the next 90 minutes. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, grading into Monday morning here in the land of enchantment with a gorgeous gibbous moon out there. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're talking about the foundation, the roots, the gestation, and I think the discernment of a grand plan that has been moving toward web for decades. So without further ado, let us uh, return to our story. Uh, If you look at number 39, this is Bill Miller. He's looking at one of the first color images that he pioneered with the 200-inch. I mean, one of the disadvantages after all that hype in the 40s and 50s and even into the beginning of the 60s, there was no technological capability to use these huge telescopes to take color imagery. Color imagery at that time depended on something called film, multi layered film and film is notorious for being very capricious you have something if you expose a piece of film to light below a certain light level the film is insensitive above a certain level it reacts very non-linearly 
In other words, twice as much light doesn't produce twice as dense an image. And so you have something called reciprocity failure. So the idea that even with a black and white image, uh, you can do long exposures unless the uh, chemistry of the photographic film is precisely tailored and Kodak, the, uh, as my friend Charlie used to say, the great yellow father in the box, did an incredible job in those years of developing film after film after film to meet more, more challenging and precise scientific requirements, not only in terms of astronomy, but in laboratories all over the planet. And Kodak, I mean, one of the most amazing things I discovered back in the 1960s uh, uh, in the late 60s, when, when the Russians were sending unmanned Zon spacecraft around the moon, and then they would drop them into the ocean, pick them up. Uh, they had cameras on board. They would develop the film, and then they would publish it in various journals and press uh, outlets in, in the West. And one of the most famous, because it tracked all you know, space activity, was aviation and uh, weakened space technology. And I remember one afternoon, uh, looking at the border of one of the Russian orbital images taken as the Zon unmanned spacecraft zipped around the moon in 1967 or 68. And there was Kodak. There was the name Kodak right on the edge of the film. So even the Soviets, in an era when they eschewed anything from decadent capitalists, they knew how to buy the best film in the world. So for some reason, Bill Miller, when he was trying to figure out how to create um, a color version of the sky, how to capture color, remember, you have to have three layers. Instead of Kodak film, Ektachrome or Kodachrome or whatever, he chose Anskachrome. And I, I, don't, I haven't researched this in so many decades that I really don't understand why. I have a feeling that it had to do with the more controllable chemistry of Anskachrome, which was one of these... Uh, young companies that was trying to take, you know, the, the market share away from Kodak. You know, good luck with that. Um, up until the very end, Kodak ruled the roost. Anyway, by means of long exposures at the prime focus of the 200-inch beginning in 1958, now, 10 years after the telescope is dedicated, after the public sees it's in operation, after headlines, you know, it's making this discovery and, Astronomers are finding that out from the images it's taking. Bill Miller was able to, using time, incredible time, like two-hour exposures uh, at the prime focus of the um, uh, uh, Hale telescope, the 200-inch, he was able to create these three-dimensional sandwiches of film. And by tinkering with light colors and filters and balances and all that, and calibrating it with photometry, he was able to create for the first time an accurate visual record of what the sky, some of the most famous objects in the sky, would look like. And you can see number 40 is the Crab Nebula, which is about 6,000 light years away, blew up back in 1054 AD and was so bright that it was visible for something like 23 days in broad daylight and was memorialized on a cliff wall at a place not too far from me tonight to the northwest uh, of here called Chaco Canyon by the Anasazi, the ancient ones. Number 41 is the famous Ring Nebula in Lyra. It, I find it very interesting that of all the, you know, Casablanca, all the gin joints in all the world, one of the first images that the um, web people chose 
was the equivalent optically and geomorphologically and geometrically of the ring nebula in the northern hemisphere. This is called the southern ring, and we'll you know be talking about that shortly. But I just found it was kind of amusing because it's obvious that someone in the Webb Space Telescope Institute uh, institution know the history of Bill Miller and his cutting-edge pioneering ability to suddenly make the data that the 200-inch was gathering accessible to ordinary people because, what is it? A photograph is worth a 1,000 or 10,000 or a million words. Anyway, um, number 42 is a nebula toward the center of the Milky Way called the Triffid Nebula because it's kind of tripartite. There's three sections there. These are uh, gaseous nebula. The one on the right is being excited by very hot, bright stars to create the luminosity and the colors and all that. The uh, nebula on the left, the blue one, is basically blue because for the same reason that uh, the, the sky of the Earth and the sky of Mars is blue. Molecular uh, um, uh, you know, elements, molecules made of elements, have a kind of a definite size. And in certain clouds, interstellar dust particles have about the same size, molecular size. And so they preferentially scatter blue light, which is why you have that gorgeous contrast of the red emission of the gases being excited by ultraviolet and the blue of reflection from the bright star in the center of the nebula, the one that's overexposed, which is streaming out all kinds of ultraviolet and short wavelengths and drenching the nebula with a scattering potential. Item number 43. Well, this is interesting. This is um, a nebula in the Northern Hemisphere in a constellation called Vulpecula. Um, and I forget what Vulpecula means. If Rick Levine is listening, he will email me or, or call me up at some point and remind me. There is this spherical-shaped agglomeration of gas. It's the same as the Ring Nebula. They only look 2D because we're seeing them projected in a 2D plane against, you know, the background of infinite space. In fact, these are spherical agglomerations of gas that are being released in explosive and violent ways over millions of years by the death throes of massive stars somewhere hiding in the center. And in some of these so-called planetary nebula, why are they called planetary nebula? Because to early astronomers like Herschel and others in their primitive telescopes, they looked like they had little tiny disks like planets. And eventually it was realized that they are, you know, millions of times farther away than the planets. But the term stuck. And so we have this, this quixotic term planetary nebula, which has really nothing to do with planets and uh, all to do with what, what gases do when they escape a star in the process of the star dying and shedding its surface, and then deeper and deeper layers. Number 44 is another uh, nebula. It's called the Lagoon Nebula because of the dark cloud of dust, which is absorbing light between the left part and the right part. And again, this is toward the center of the galaxy. They even tried for a while to see if they could photograph planets with a 200-inch. This is a early attempt, and it quickly uh, uh, faded into the background because the problem is that even the films, the ANSCO films that Miller was working with, were so insensitive to light 
did not respond, did not darken when photons struck it, unless a lot of photons struck it, that you know, exposures had to be minutes long. And of course, you can imagine, if you ever look through a telescope and you know what happens to stars when you look through the atmosphere uh, over any long period of time, stars twinkle, they scintillate, they bounce around, they don't stay steady. And of course, a planetary object is composed of millions of separate points all of which are moving incoherently because of the burbling and the boiling of the atmosphere due to normal thermal convection uh, in ways that totally destroys the resolution of the uh, planet uh, that you're trying to photograph. So the 200 inch, which theoretically was capable of seeing like a, a dime from Los Angeles to New York, really was stymied up until relatively recently by the, the brute, you know, realities of the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's surface, it turns out, is really not the place to uh, raise a telescope. And that's why Hubble and Webb and the Orbiting Astronomical Series that I was hired to document at Goddard when I got the uh, NASA contract to begin this process and to lay out the foundation of what eventually would uh, become the Webb Space Telescope all those Earth-based telescopes are limited by the one factor that we can't do without, the atmosphere. So although that's a really interesting Mars image, it's not very informative because it's really, really blurry. Which, of course, us, takes us now back to Webb. Because Webb, particularly in this image, which is part of the uh, stamp series that the uh, post office department is going to be selling to the general public, memorializing Webb, beginning in December of this year, 2022. I mean, in, in, in this configuration, looking at the, you know, tennis court size five layer sun shield and the instrument package on the bottom and the telescope shielded in the shadow of the tennis court size sun shield on the top. So it will never see sunlight. It will never rise more than 40 degrees above absolute zero because in the infrared, the last thing you want to do is to photograph your own telescope. And what do I mean by that? Well, in our normal experience, color comes from light coming from the sun, bouncing off solid, relatively cool objects, and the light is, is split into various bands. And so you have mauves and greens and blues and yellows and turquoise and ruby red and all those incredible colors. And their combinations are due to reflection from solid objects, basically. Now, the exception to this in astronomy is that if you look at nebula, which are being excited to emit light as opposed to simply reflect light, um, they can emit light in various discrete frequencies, which correspond, of course, to colors. And so that's why these space images with Hubble and all the Earth-based telescopes now, they're doing stunning jobs of securing electronic digital imagery of almost every square you know, degree of, of, of space from the Earth, as well as the space telescopes themselves, like Hubble, they all depend on either this front surface reflection, material absorbs light, you know, reflects other light, and that's why it has a certain color, or it's intrinsically hot enough, like a gas in a vacuum being energized by a star, so that like a neon sign, it radiates its own colors in narrow bands and narrow lines and narrow frequencies of the visible electromagnetic spectrum. 
But of course, nature is not limited to what the human eye, the human detector can see. So the Webb telescope by design is designed to look in the infrared, just beyond the red end of the visible spectrum, deep into the what's called the mid-infrared, which is before you get to the long wave infrared, which is where cool objects literally radiate. The difference between the colors that Webb sees and the colors that Hubble sees is that the Webb colors are in part generated by the materials actually radiating energy from within them by being warm, by, by being infrared emitters. And so you can synthesize with filters in the darkroom or digitally in a computer, the human eye spectrum, and you can downshift all the frequencies to similar color equivalents. In other words, what the, what the web people are doing and the Hubble people before them, they basically move the visual spectrum from where it is to the infrared, to the invisible, which we can't see with our own eyes. But they assign the shortest infrared wavelengths to blue and the longest to red. So when you see these incredible web color images, they're in fact the way the universe would look if human eyesight were simply shifted, downshifted to another lower frequency part of the spectrum, part of which literally has objects that if they're warm, they will emit color so that you have a combination of reflection and intrinsic emission when you put up the final color composites. And that's why creating color images from the web data is not. Now let's go to 47. This is the um, kind of hallmark image that I chose for tonight's show. On the left is the uh, uh, near cam, the short infrared wave uh, rendition of the uh, southern ring, and on the right is the MIRCAM, which is the much longer wave uh, emission and reflection in the infrared from the um, other uh, infrared camera on the spacecraft. And you can see that there are stunning differences, which if you know something about uh, radiational physics and how these colors are generated and what's bouncing off what and what is uh, uh, illuminated by reflection and what is intrinsically you know, being powered by internal thermal heat, you can see this intriguing difference, which of course to an astronomer and to the right computer program is revealing astonishing new details about this planetary nebula, this dying uh, cocoon of material shed in rings from the process, one of the two stars in the center there on the right. You can see that there's literally a double star. One of them has died. The other one is in the process of dying because material is being pulled off it and into the dead one that's orbiting not far away. And that process, that incredible process, according to the interpretation by all the mainstream astronomers, is that it is the constant conflicting moving gravitational fields of the two stars, the two companions twirling around each other that then take and fling the material which was ejected in, in epochs, in, in, in successions. In other words, you have an ejection phase and then you have quiescence and then the, the star builds up energy to eject the next shell, the next outer layer. And while all this is going on over millions of years, it's orbiting its companion. And so these constantly changing, constantly shifting gravitational fields twist the uh, shells into these remarkable 
uh, shape that you can see in both images. However, is that all there is? Because there are nebula, planetary nebula, or proto-planetary nebula that in fact don't seem to operate according to these basic laws of physics. Before we leave the uh, item of the southern ring, if you uh, put that back up there and look on the left, to the far edge of the nebula, you'll see this little streak of light. And if you look on the companion image on the right with the uh, uh, mid-wavelengths, uh, you'll see the same streak in the same place. Now, it's very curious that it seems to be aligned with the center of the nebula, the two stars. So that caused some astronomers to think initially it was some kind of a kind of a light beam through dust clouds shining like a searchlight or like an opaque screen where you have a little slit. And so light behind it will, will you know, fan out in a kind of a direct beam and scatter off the nebula. Turns out that that's not what's going on. The incredible versimilitude uh, vers vers and the incredible um, uh, legacy and the incredible diversity of technologies and sensitivities of the Webb telescope allows us to make an enlargement, which I think I've kind of over enlarged here. And you can see that that strange streak-like object is in fact a galaxy, a spiral galaxy, kind of like the Milky Way, um, literally hundreds of millions, if not a billion or two light years away. And going down the very edge is one of these uh, disc hugging dust clouds that circumnavigate the entire periphery. So when you look at galaxies edge on, you basically see this disk of speckled dust out of which new stars and new planetary systems and maybe even new people in that distant galaxy are born. Okay, number 49. The model that all these geometries in these planetary nebula can be satisfied by simple gravitational interactions between twirling partners completely falls apart when you look at item number 49. On the left is our familiar southern ring in the image in the short wavelength infrared that was released on uh, Tuesday. On the right is a protoplanetary nebula, which is literally when the star is beginning to die before it has formed a fully uh, functional spherical planetary vortex of conflicting gases and dust and swirls and eddies and uh, all that good stuff. And what's so remarkable, this thing is called uh, the red rectangle, and it happens to live in the same constellation of Monosauros, the unicorn, that Edwin Hubble for some reason chose on a December night in 1949 to shoot the first professional long-term astronomical image with the 200-inch, a nebula called the uh, um, Cone Nebula. And I never could understand why he picked that because it's frankly boring, boring, boring. I mean, why didn't he pick this? Of course, he didn't know this existed yet. But here's the problem. If ordinary gravitational interaction can explain the Ring Nebula or the Southern Ring or all kinds of other planetary nebula that kind of look like the ring does there, what could possibly in any conceivable physics have gases drifting through space, moving at thousands of miles per hour, 
if not hundreds of, of miles per second in some cases, what could cause it to form stunning symmetrical geometrical patterns that are so precise, so resolute, so dramatic, so uh, dynamic, and so symmetrical that in mainstream physics, they literally admit that they don't understand what's going on, which, of course, leaves a huge, huge opening for the Webb telescope and all the astronomers and even ordinary members of the public who are going to use it someday. Because the plan is for the Webb telescope to open up uh, valuable telescope time um, so they can literally um, have a chance to to uh, find out what is going on in the universe themselves. There's going to be a line of citizen scientists who can put in proposals and who will be allocated time on the web if their research project, their objective is warranted as sufficiently interesting scientifically by a peer review panel. Now, of course, if you've been a devotee of the show for any length of time, you know what I'm going to say is going on in the right-hand picture. You are seeing the quintessential extraordinary 3D demonstration of a hyper-dimensional physics connection between our 3D reality and a hyper-dimensional reality, and the transmission medium is geometry. Whatever those stars are doing at the heart of this protoplanetary nebula, they are twirling or processing or doing something in such a fashion that they literally are setting up standing waves in empty three-dimensional space. And like dye in a stream, which is forced to move where the currents move, so you can actually see where the currents are. If you pour red dye into a transparent brook, you'll see where the dye goes, and that's where the water is going. So something about the physics of connection between dimensions in this particular star system, and there are a lot of stars with this stunning geometry seen in the uh, uh, Hubble uh, database, and of course to be explored with this much more incredibly powerful telescope in the right section of the spectrum to really plumb the physics of what's going on. Because one of the weird things is not only are these nebula glowing from like hydrogen, you know, emission lines of hydrogen gas being cited by ultraviolet light from the uh, star, you know, a few light years distant, but they also seem to be luminous or phosphorescent or generating some kind of luminosity of their own. And of course, the standard model, which the astronomers have turned to is, oh, they're being excited in some fashion by the uh, uh, ultraviolet light uh, coming from the star. The only problem with that explanation is that the ultraviolet light coming from the star, in fact, should probably destroy the um, nebula and the materials in the nebula stone cold. In other words, they seem to be made of organics. And those organic materials are incredibly fragile to being broken up by ultraviolet light, particularly the kind of raw, incredibly energetic ultraviolet light that these very massive young stars um, or very aged old stars that have lost their envelopes and are exposing <clears throat> their kind of naked cores uh, like white dwarfs, 
they would really irradiate and destroy complex organic molecules, which the mainstream astronomers admit make up a large percentage of the red rectangle, as well as a number of other nebula showing the same exotic anomalies that frankly do not have a thorough, deep scientific understanding. Now, as you know, any place where there is uh, hyperdimensional physics, there is also energy in our model being transmitted between dimensions. Is it too much to ask if in fact the excitation mechanism of the organic gas and dust, the hydrocarbons and all the other elements assembled in little grains of dust swimming in this nebula in such geometric uh, fashion, if in fact they're being excited to emit energy in three dimensions because somehow they're being excited by energy from a fourth dimension or higher. And it's the physics of the stars themselves as they twirl around each other and they interact in a processional way that I think could answer where is the unknown energy coming from. And with that, we are at the uh, bottom of the hour. Yeah, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got about, uh, uh, well, let's see. It's 11.30 here, so 1 o'clock. We've got about 90 minutes until the other side is on the other side. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we're going to now tie some very crucial things together, both politically, scientifically, and in terms of the dreaded D word, disclosure. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this now Sunday night, Monday morning. My clock jumped. It, one moment I looked at it, it said 11.30, and now it says 12.01. So, obviously, technology is uh, undergoing weird little things tonight, and we are not anywhere near a Mercury retrograde. So, we've got about an hour left. Uh, I'm going to give out some phone numbers uh, shortly, and we will uh, open the phone lines if you want to talk about certain things. In the meantime, let me go back to talking about some of the stunning things that Webb is going to do, and in fact is going to do in a way that fulfilling what I said at the top of the show could literally wind up saving the human race. So let me explain exactly how that can work. Waiting for a suitable moment here in the music. There we are. Okay, if you go to um, um, the other side of midnight, and you click on uh, number 50, remember how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, that takes you to the uh, guest page. Uh, under it, you see uh, fast links, click on my name, that will take you to the uh, section of the website called Radio with Pictures, where we have all these rather remarkable images. Number 50 is the released image from the web people uh, last, Tuesday, the 12th, showing one of the things they are proposing to do, and they actually already have done. As we now know, given that there are lots and lots of stars that have planets, and given that a fair fraction of those are lined up so they all go around their star in the same plane, which seems to be a reflection of how they are formed in what's called a uh, pre-planetary disk, Eventually, the model says that you get condensation of materials, gas and dust, and you get planets of various sizes and masses at various distances moving in basically circular orbits around the star. Well, if the alignment between the orbit of those planets orbiting a distant star is aligned with the solar system, in other words, if you had a super, super, super pair of sunglasses or eyeglasses or a telescope of many miles in, in size, you could literally see a little dot moving across, excuse me, across the disk of the star, just like you can see Ver Venus and Mercury transiting our own star, because we're basically in the plane sometimes of their orbits of the sun, and they are interior to us. So when we look in toward the sun, occasionally Venus and Mercury kind of intervene, and we see their backsides, their shadowed sides, and we see them trekking at their orbital velocities from left to right across the solar disk. Well, this is like, it, on Earth it's called a transit. When a planet in the solar system transits uh, another object, in this case the sun. Um, it's the same thing in interstellar space. It doesn't matter how far away the star or planetary system is, at a certain finite angle, if you're in that plane, you will not see, of course, that... that uh, artistic representation of a glowing disk, the star, with a little black circle, the planet moving 
from left to right. What you'd see instead is a little dimming, a minute dimming of the star. And because you know the geometry of what's causing the dimming, you can use the light curve from the dimming if you have sufficiently accurate instrumentation to record that yellow line uh, below the diagram of the uh, planet orbiting the star. And that's in fact what astronomers since 1995, when the first so-called exoplanet was discovered by a group in Switzerland, uh, and Ted Koppel did a live broadcast from the uh, Harvard College Observatory uh, collaborating the detection uh, of and a star system called 51 Pegasi, uh, the first star cataloged in the constellation of Pegasus, incredibly minute dip in, in light uh, intensity, which can be translated through a mathematical model into a representation of the orbit, the size of the planet, how fast it's moving around. And if you get more than one planet doing this, by looking at the interactions between them and using um, you know, relativity or actually more practically uh, Newton's laws, you can deduce gravitationally the mass of the orbiting planets. And that's how you know, mainstream science now is trying to look out into the galaxy and estimate the number of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way, extrapolating, of course, to the number of Earth-like planets that might exist in the Andromeda galaxy, in M33, in M101, any of the galaxies in our neighborhood or galaxies millions of light years away. As long as the star is bright enough and the telescope is big enough to capture enough light to have a high precision of measuring its diminution and then return to normal when the eclipse or transit is over, you have the makings of a way to figure out the physics of a very distant but occulting star system another planetary system. One of the really weird things, and I pointed this out a couple nights ago, is that we've been doing this now. When I say we, I mean the human race, professional astronomers, the so-called exoplanetary community, have been doing these kind of measurements with increasingly accurate technologies, better telescopes, better spectrometers, better mirrors, better uh, blocking devices, better artificial eclipsing devices, the whole range of technology is getting better and better and better. And what's weird is that we have yet to find, they have yet to find a planetary system in all of the thousands of stars that have now been examined by this technique. We're unique. The solar system, let me repeat that. The solar system, as we know it, with the little guys in toward the sun, like huddling around a campfire and the big giant guys far, far away. Pluto is, you know, 4 billion miles. It's a small guy, but that's an anomaly. Uh, it, it could be one of the so-called, uh, 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 or not Oort cloud, but the uh, um, Kuiper belt, which is named after a, a Dutch astronomer who worked at the University of <clears throat> Texas McDonald Observatory in, and it predicted that in the outer, outer, outer solar system, there should be abundant materials to form all kinds of objects, not including very large planets, but mostly much smaller objects on the order of moons or very large asteroids or even bits of sand and dust. And in the 1990s, as technology developed, lo and behold, that prediction by Kuiper decades before turned out to be true. So the solar system has what's called a second 
asteroid belt, the so-called Kuiper belt, beginning far beyond Pluto and extending for hundreds of thousands of millions of miles uh, away from the sun, like about halfway between us and the nearest star, which is about two light years or maybe uh, three trillion miles out since, um, I'm sorry, did I say three? I, I meant I mean six, because uh, a light year is about six trillion miles. Handy number to remember at a cocktail party, all right? Someone asked you, well, how long is a light year? Well, it's the distance light travels in a year at 186,000 miles per second. But it also is about 6 trillion miles. So that's how big our local tiny portion of the universe really is. And so it's incredibly audacious and almost bordering on hubris to imagine that with our finite minds and even more finite technology, we can make a dent in figuring out what's really going on and, again, why are we here? But we're making really interesting progress. And so one of the key parts of the Webb mission, which was not even a mission when Webb was designed and the construction actually began back in about 2004, is it's going to be spending a lot of its time looking at other star systems, other transiting, occulting star systems, and cataloging and monitoring and doing incredible deep science on the light properties um, that are evident only as a planet goes into an eclipse in front of a star and we're watching. And they, they gave a demonstration uh, on um, uh, Tuesday that they had looked at one of these incredibly weird Jupiter mass planets which orbits its star in like less than three hours. I mean, come on. Jupiter takes almost 12 years to go around. And we have this whole category, which no one knew existed until 1995, of planets that are as massive as the Jovians, like Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus or Neptune. But instead of taking years or decades to go around their star, they whip around in days. And they're called hot Jupiters because they're very, very hot, being only a few million miles away from the sun, from the star that they orbit. Those are not the places that we're looking to either raise our kids or for other life forms or beings that have evolved separately in the Milky Way. So since 99.99% of the star systems that we found conform to that configuration and our configuration of planets, the small habitable guys in toward the star and the big uninhabitable ones far outside, does not seem to be replicated anywhere in any of the observations that astronomers have been making of these uh, systems since 1995, the, the reality is dawning that maybe we are unique. Now, are we unique because the universe finds it incredibly difficult to form a planetary system like ours? Or are we unique? And this, of course, for those of you that have been following this research for some time, you know my predilection that we're unique because someone at some time in the far distant past, maybe uh, almost a billion years ago, came along. I call them generically the Cosmic Engineers, which is the name of a brilliant book written in the 1950s by Clifford Simak. I strongly urge everyone to go out and find a copy and read the damn thing because he also, like Isaac and Arthur and Robert and Fred and all those guys, was incredibly prescient about what we would 
have happened to us and what we would find someday out there. Anyway, in my model, the cosmic engineers are looking at space and they realize that the formation process that creates planetary systems winds up destroying the, the inward planets before they can give birth to life, let alone complex intelligence or technological intelligence. So, given that they must be incredibly old, being one of the earliest, if not the earliest uh, beings, personas, cultures to, to be created out of this bizarre universe, they kind of took it on themselves to become like cosmic gardeners. And they have moved in this model from star system to star system, basically redesigning. And that sounds, of course, impossible because we can't do it. But we, of course, don't have ready access to hyperdimensional physics, and they do. So with that kind of physics, you can do anything. Ultimately, you can move whole stars around. You can move planets. You can reconfigure satellites. You can place things anywhere you want and keep them there. And so my model is that life-bearing systems may be intrinsically very, very rare because the natural conditions to create a habitable solar system like ours are almost vanishingly scarce. Now, we don't have data yet to really back that up, but the fact that out of thousands of known worlds, we're the only ones in this configuration, I mean, really has to make you think. Because it's one thing if you're, as Stammer used to say, looking at the night sky, well, we're just average. We're ones of billions, or as Carl would say, if he was with us, you know, trillions. But in fact, if the cosmos does not create habitable planetary systems, at least the kind that we're familiar with, where the people live on the outside of the planet as opposed to on the inside, like maybe they do in the ocean worlds of Europa or Enceladus or maybe even Titan, which is orbiting uh, uh, Saturn. If these places which have oceans, in fact, have life and intelligence, then they will never know the stars unless they burrow upward through miles of ice and come to stand on the surface. Think of it as kind of intelligent dolphins in spacesuits. I mean, I know that's a stretch, but and how would they make spacesuits? How would they make anything capable of boring through miles of ice when there's no way you can create under miles of water? in the bottoms of a deep ocean on a moon like Europa or um, Enceladus, how can you create the key thing which separates us from nature, the art of wielding fire? You can't really have fire underwater. So you can't have smelting. You can't have ores. You can't have electronics. You can't. In other words, the whole basis of technology is completely kiboshed if the intelligence evolves or comes into being evolution may be too uh, archaic a term, um, in such a water world where they never even know that the sky or the universe or the galaxy exists because their universe is bounded by a solid ceiling of miles thick ice. So item number 51 is explaining how an Earth-like planet, like Earth, like the planets that we're living on tonight and we're all breathing the air and all that, how even thousands of light years away with the incredibly sophisticated and very precise and tailored instrumentation on web designed to do exactly this, how the web space telescope is going to save humanity. In one line, I can tell you, 
It's going to save humanity by finding that we are not alone. And the way it's going to do it is in the format, in the modality that mainstream science has kind of wrapped their head around, which is it's perfectly fine if we have life out there as long as it's comfortably many, many hundreds, if not thousands of light years away. In other words, it's back to the white queen. Jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, but never jam today. There are astronomers, some of them really kind of out there, like Abby Loeb, who are freely touting the idea that the galaxy is teeming with life. And all we have to do is create the right technology to go and find it. And we'll find it around the nearer stars or the next nearer or the next nearer. And that's one of the reasons why well into its development, when the whole idea of exoplanets was born in 1995 with a crescendo that for a, for a mission which began, you know, decades earlier, it was very quickly adaptable to including as this roster of scientific missions that if it had the right detectors with a telescope with a mirror 21 plus feet in diameter, you'll detect enough infrared energy that you literally can look across thousands or even 100,000 light years. You can see a transit of a planet against its background star. And because of the power of the telescope, the mirror collection ability and the instrumentation, the incredibly sensitive, incredibly cold, which makes them sensitive, infrared detectors, which literally had to be created from nothing to match the capabilities of the mirror. You will be able to look across space and you'll be able to single out by measuring the components of the atmospheres shining like a little ring around the planet as they orbit their star. And if you think I'm being fanciful, click on uh, number, what is it, 51, I think, no, 52, okay. And you'll see that there are a bunch of worlds depicted in this artist's conception. On at least two of them, maybe three, there's this little ring of light. That is supposed to be, in the artist's conception, the atmosphere of these Earth-sized worlds, which is refracting and absorbing the light of the star, leaving indelible chemical fingerprints in the light and the infrared energy that eventually reaches the Webb telescope. It will catalog, record, um, look for patterns, catalog a whole bunch of these systems, and the odds are, betting very favorably, that if they look long enough and hard enough and deep enough, they will find, the web people will find, that there are in fact worlds that have atmospheres that have some of the biochemical signatures that you see in item number 51, particularly free oxygen, uh, free methane, uh, water vapor in the clouds that comes and goes with weather cycles. But it's really the free oxygen, which in the first models is an indicator that maybe Webb will have found a habitable world because by any of the known chemistry, unless you really reach and imagine such unplausible scenarios that it's basically well nigh to magic. Common way that we know on Earth to generate in a planetary atmosphere a lot of free oxygen. And oxygen doesn't want to remain free. It loves to glom onto anything and oxidize it and you know sit there tucked into a nice little cradle in a very tight atomic bond 
And so free oxygen is very rare just because of the energetics. And on Earth, the the disequilibrium between the atmosphere of the Earth and let's say the atmosphere of Mars, which is basically mostly carbon dioxide with just a trace of free oxygen, which comes from ultraviolet light splitting the carbon dioxide in the known Martian atmosphere. The presence of a large quantity of free oxygen has been the hallmark for decades of a biosignature of an abundant and active biosystem, a biological uh, organism on a planetary scale, which is literally leaving imprints, fingerprints of its presence in the atmospheric composition of its world. And Webb has been designed uh, partly by chance, partly by design, particularly in the last uh, uh, decade or so, that it contains the instrumentation that it will be able to look at these relatively close by transiting planetary systems and it will be able to detect if in fact there is another world, another Earth or Earth-like planet that resembles to a high degree our own. And that's what number 52 is demonstrating because we have found such a world. It was found several years ago. It's called TRAPPIST-1, and TRAPPIST is an acronym standing for Transiting Planet, and I forget the rest of it, but it's basically a network of little observatories with small telescopes on the Earth that monitor lots and lots of stars looking for these occultations, and then they do the back engineering and the calculations, and they can basically tease out the parameters of these star systems, even if they are composed of not just one planet, but multiple planets. So a couple, three years ago, this network of astronomers all over the world uh, found a candidate, an astonishing candidate called TRAPPIST-1, which turns out to consist of a very tiny, very dim, very low mass red M-type star, which radiates about one ten thousandth the energy of the sun. And it's, it's radiating at such a feeble rate compared to the sun, but it's so massive compared to any planet that the estimated life of such a planetary system is measured in literally hundreds of billions of years before the thermonuclear fuel in the center of the M dwarf star runs out and the star either expands or explodes or just kind of fades away. So in, I forget what year, it was just a few years ago, TRAPPIST-1 was discovered. Now, what makes TRAPPIST-1 so unique, and I use that term very specifically, it's unique. I haven't found anything else even approaching it in the last five or six years since TRAPPIST-1 was found. It consists of seven. Let me say that again. It consists of seven Earth-sized Earth planets all orbiting in the same plane in regular planetary spacing this little tiny red dwarf star and three of them uh the two end ones you know or the three end ones don't count but three of them in the center of the so-called habitable zone are far enough away from the m star that um, the uh, water will not boil and so you'll have water as steam steam is not conducive to life certainly on earth or they're not too far away that the water that's on the surface if there is any, would basically freeze and the atmosphere would come to a halt and all potential biochemistry and life would cease to exist. 
they're right in what's called the Goldilocks zone. And name is exactly what it means. A region where in space where it's not too hot, it's not too cold, the sunlight coming in from the star is just right to maintain an active biosphere. Well, when this was first discovered, I mean, come on, seven Earth size, Earth mass planets all orbiting one star. And oh, did I mention, and we're about four minutes from the bottom of the hour, did I mention that this star is 39 light years away, twice 19.5. And seven is the number of symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. So it didn't take much imagination, at least for me, to leap to the obvious idea that TRAPPIST-1 is another example of what I think our own solar system is. It's a designer solar system. The cosmic engineers, a long time ago, moved all these planets from other star systems, arranged them all in this incredibly compact geometric configuration where, I mean, that's not just an artist's conception. If you're on one of these planets, you look up, you see the other planets moving through the sky, and they're much bigger than a full moon as seen from Earth. I mean, it's, visually, it would be stunning. You'd see crescents, you'd see eclipses, you'd see occultations, you'd see auroras, you'd see, well, if there are civilizations there, you'd see cities glimmering on the night side, you'd see them crossing the star, you'd see momentary eclipses um, uh, on the inner planets. There may actually be uh, eclipses that last for several minutes. The point is, this is such an incredibly rich system and it's all composed of seven Earth-like planets. And I'm telling you, the mainstream guys and gals, to a person, have bent over backwards and twisted themselves into pretzels to try to come up with some natural planetary evolutionary origin scenario that explains seven Earth-like planets, three at the right distance to be habitable, all of them in the same damn system. And guess what? TRAPPIST-1 is at the top of the list for detailed years of investigation by all the resources of the Webb Space Telescope. Because again, by looking in the infrared, not being constrained by the Earth's atmosphere, they are literally able to monitor the presence of biological molecules and dust particles and any of the other signatures of living systems. And what's really cute, what's so astonishing, what's in fact so weird, is that the two systems are aligned with the equator of the solar system, the so-called ecliptic, that if you were sitting on a planet tonight in the TRAPPIST-1 system and you were looking at the Earth, you would see the Earth literally occluding, transiting, eclipsing, our own sun. So we have two solar systems, both of which are absolutely damn if I know how they ever got to form. And they're only 39, twice 19.5 light years away. And they're aligned and aimed toward each other so that the inhabitants of one can see and measure the effects, the hyperdimensional effects of the other. And is that an accident? I don't think so. 
which brings us to the breaking news tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland with one half hour to go in our Reb special. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. On this Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment, we're talking about an incredibly, I mean, really bizarre. It should not exist. It, I, I, I can't wait to see what the modelers attempt to come up with, because frankly, no matter how much they turn themselves inside out, upside down and backwards, they're not going to have a natural model that accounts for uniquely seven Earth-like planets in one system. I mean, when I first saw this and looked at the parameters, the only thing I could think of was some giant galactic amusement park. And because they're so close to each other, the uh, transit times between the planets is trivial. You know, even an ordinary 21st century spacecraft like uh, Musk's uh, could, could make it easily in, you know, a few days. And that would easily, you know, uh, satisfy any primitive technologies of the same ilk. If they have other capabilities like control of gravity what if like here on earth this system of seven planets twirling through the skies with the most incredible in my mind i'm picturing this complex interplay of hyperdimensional fields torsion resonances null zones amplifications refractions where the physics is palpable every single day and it changes from planet to planet to planet. So if you want a different hyperdimensional experience, maybe you go from the far exterior world, which orbits at a period close to um, like 19 hours, give or take. And one wonders if this system 
is incredibly old, has degradation, has interaction caused the planetary orbits to change, as some suspect for our own solar system. Like, why does Jupiter go around the sun in 11.8 years and not 12? All right. Why does Saturn go around the sun in 29 years and not 30, et cetera, et cetera? It almost indicates, as I was saying to Rick the other night, that something has slipped. And, of course, I think I know what it was. You can't blow up a whole damn planet in the middle of a created star system, planetary system, and not have weird, weird side effects where things begin to slide and move and change looking for a new lower energy resonant pattern. It's, it's what physics works on, patterns and low energy systems and states. So if the TRAPPIST-1 system, which again, remember, is optically connected, we see their transits, they see ours, and we're only 39, twice 19.5 light years apart. Now, I have not had time to go and look at what's called the proper motion data for TRAPPIST-1, meaning how fast it's moving relative to the Earth uh, around the galaxy. That's uh, future work. But I would bet you dollars to Navy Beans that the time frame for when it was exact and when the resonances of the planets in the system were exact in terms of the hyperdimensional model is sometime within the last 300,000 to maybe 500,000 years when this thing called intelligence suddenly, out of nowhere, arose on Earth. And now, because of all the artifacts, we know that something incredibly important and very technological and very sophisticated and very long-lived was going on on Mars. There are indications that things might have gone on on Venus. There's evidence in the record from NASA data or from the Chinese or from the Russians that in the outer solar system, you have colonies, you have whole worlds which have been modified to contain populations inside, not just on the surface. And then, I'll tell you what, let me, let me do this. Let me go back to the other side of midnight, and I'm going to go, number 53 is simply another artist projection of the uh, Trappist system, and it's, it's literally the scale. You know, this is the size of the star, this is the size of the planets, and this is how close they are, and they're all one big happy family. Well, into this mix tonight was dumped a really stunning uh, breaking news. Because I had a friend, as I said, who's been very long in the UAP, UFO, EXO uh, political uh, uh, terrain. And he uh, sent me an email and he said, have you been looking at the Jovian released image from the Webb Space Telescope? And that's number 54. So simply click on 54 and then scroll a little bit to the left so that the uh, uh, Jupiter looking image that kind of is familiar, except of course this is in the infrared. So you've got days from hazes and emissions and, and uh, absorptions and all that. But it basically, I mean, the one big difference is the great red spot is a bright, you know, yellowish oval with the shadow of Europa next to it, that dark little circle, because this is an image where the materials floating above the great red spot are radiating infrared energy, reflecting it rather dramatically. So in this view, it appears bright as opposed to dark. Now, what you wanna do is you wanna 
uh, click on that image and then look to the left where it says Europa. And between Europa, by the way, Europa is not a black planet. The reason that that center of light is dark is because of the digital reversal in the engineering of how this image was created. That is fixed by software. This is such a rush out, put it out there so that people can see it that they didn't even have time to correct the digital uh, negativization, uh, which is a term I just made up, when the signal is so bright, when the light is so bright that literally the detector goes into a negative mode and records it as dark. Well, if you look between Europa, the actual name, and the planet, Jupiter, which is the banded giant to the right, in between, there is this remarkable, very symmetric, very geometric, very dark, in fact, black object that has no business being there. I mean, really, it shouldn't be there. And yet it is. Okay, so get out of this. And now what you want to do is you want to go to the next image down, which is 55, which for some reason, and this is so interesting, when this first came out on Thursday as part of the data dump of the commissioning imagery and the engineering images and kind of working up to a final working telescope. And they've archived all that and they've now dumped it out into the public and it's all over the world. This anomaly, just it just stands out. Now, admittedly, this is an engineering image. It's not perfect. Obviously, the negative reversal of bright, you know, overwhelming luminosity has not been fixed and that will be in the final versions of the software. But they put it out there anyway, and then item number 55, they gave us an enhanced, overexposed version. Except you turned up the gain on the uh, uh, image on the left on the uh, number 54, and there very clearly, if you click on it, which I recommend you do, and scroll down and over, what in the world? This appears to be a solid object, a solid geometric object and it appears to be almost in the ring plane or equatorial plane of Jupiter that's that little ring to the left going through the diffraction beams from overexposed Europa and it appears to have a geometry and all around it there are little flecks and clusters of black stuff like gnats whirling around uh, in, in, in eclipse on bright light uh, as you're walking on, on a summer night you know, with your best uh, whatever. So that object does not look like anything nature made. It looks geometric. It looks artificial. And for everyone who's leaping to the idea that Webb picked up an artificial spacecraft at the orbit of Jupiter, no, 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 no. thousand times no. What Webb has picked up is some stunning, striking anomaly which appears in projection to be seen against the backdrop of Jupiter, but it's, if I'm right about the model here, it's a hell of a lot closer than half a billion miles away. Now you've got to ask the question, is this in fact an artificial spacecraft from someone, maybe the neighbors on TRAPPIST-1, who now know that we're going to eavesdrop and look into their system in their backyards, and they're kind of you know letting us know, oh, that's... That's kind of verboten. I'm being facetious, of course. But the damn thing does not look natural, and it's not at Jupiter. And if it's a lot closer, like half a billion miles closer, remember, 
Webb is a million miles away from the sun behind the earth. If it was like two million miles away, it would make it of a very large size, totally eclipsing, pun intended, any earth envisioned spacecraft for a very long time, but not out of the realm of a high-tech civilization, which can travel between the stars, which can remodel solar systems, which can basically, you know, like um, the 800-pound gorilla, sleep anywhere it wants to, and somehow is wound up in our backyard and is literally putting itself as a kind of a selfie in between the telescope and Jupiter when this engineering image was taken. Now, given the angles and precision exemplified in this image, whoever positioned this object between Webb and Jupiter, particularly if it's very close to uh, Webb, like a few million miles away, they had to have a phenomenal knowledge of not only where Jupiter was, but where the Webb telescope was going to be aiming, going to be pointing, going to be taking data, even in an engineering mode. So as I've said, my view of ETs is their family. And if they're family, they're here. They've been among us for a very long time. Some of them hold very responsible positions. Hell, some of them could even be on the Webb and Hubble teams or at JPL or on Perseverance, anywhere, because they're us, they're humans. They just hang their hat somewhere out there, piece of real estate, and they're here on some kind of mission to, well, that's going to be part of the discussion, isn't it? Why are they here? If, of course, this whole logic chain, as delicate and fragile as it is, is in fact reality. Now, the disturbing thing to me about the little black dots all hovering around this dark object, first of all, why is it black? I mean, look at the ring of Jupiter behind it, which is half a billion miles from the sun. Look at how you've got the ring itself, very narrow, very thin, because it's made of sulfur particles from uh, volcanoes uh, leaving uh, Io um, at escape velocity or greater. But look at the kind of hazy boundary around the ring. That hazy boundary glowing is in fact infrared emission. So the same thing should be happening to an object, a physical object, if it's a lot closer to the sun by several million miles or maybe two or 300 million. So it's only you know, a few million, million miles behind where, where Webb is. But this object is absolutely dark. Why is it dark? Why is it pitch black? Why are all those little specks black? Is it because there is some active infrared heat suppression mechanism, some kind of shielding? So in normal space, they wouldn't even show up on radar, let alone any other emitted or reflected uh, electromagnetic radiation band. And again, these are forced on us by the fact that this is official data coming from the Webb telescope team. And this data is sitting there tonight, only a few days old. And what's stunning is that NASA has put out whole pages uh, on this whole thing. Just go back up to the top and you know, click on the, uh, on the Webb imagery uh, site and you'll have access to every image they put out on the Webb uh, after Thursday. This object is among them. And yet they describe everything else. If you go back and look at the other image of the, uh, of the uh, uh, system, of the Jovian system, 
They literally are trying to tell us about every object in the system, every object save one. They do not talk about this bizarre anomaly. They don't reference it. They don't say it's some kind of a camera glitch. They don't say that it's a, you know, an errant astro. They don't say anything. They just ignore it like if they ignore it, it'll go away. But at the same time, they've taken and blown up and produced this overwhelming brightness version so the incredible geometric blackness of the intruder against the background overexposed image of Jupiter is blatantly obvious. They're hanging, as they say in Hollywood, a lantern on it, and they're not saying a word. Why do you think that is? Okay, it's time to connect some dots. The last link at the bottom, 57, is a um, space.com history abbreviated of James Webb. Who was James Webb? Where did he come from? Why did Kennedy pick him as the second administrator? Why was he incredibly brilliant at his job? Why did he ultimately retire? Why did he leave NASA? Did he leave NASA voluntarily? Was he forced out? Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> can someone correlate data that I had from a Mason years ago that James Webb was a 33rd degree Mason? Now, why is that important? Well, think about the time span from the gestation meeting in 1989 at the Space Telescope Institute, where they talked about the next generation telescope beyond uh, Hubble. And that became Webb, the Webb Space Telescope. Think of that span of time, 33 years. Accident tonight that Webb is basically taking data in the 33rd tetrahedral hyperdimensional Masonic number of years since it was conceived? Is it possible that all those inordinate delays, all that money, all those excuses, all those lab problems, all those mechanical issues, that all of it is one big shaggy dog story because Webb had to be on station tonight in the 33rd year from its inception in order to observe what? Are we maybe seeing in that Jovian image what it's supposed to be observing? And why is there this cloud with smaller particles? I mean, when I saw this, given that I have said many times on this show that we are in some kind of interplanetary or interstellar war, it's a very long conversation, and it involves, uh, among other things, President Donald Trump and that incredible escapade of going racing across Lafayette Square and holding up an upside-down Bible in front of St. John's Church. I don't think for a minute that was Trump's ego. I don't think a lot of things that Trump does is because of ego. I think it's all part of some other larger plan. The reason I think that is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, decades ago, you know, inaugurator of the New Deal, uh, forerunner of the Great Society, who transformed American culture so that we actually take care of each other, we care for each other, it's not dog-eat-dog dog and, you know, uh, tooth and claw, at least it's not supposed to be. He said decades ago that in politics, there's no such thing, which, of course, now makes me go back and look at George Ellery Hale. Who was this guy who somehow had the magic touch that he was able to raise money, you know, out of, out of stones, out of bricks, out of dry ground? He raised a phenomenal amount of money for his time when you, you know, account for inflation. And he built 
the four largest astronomical outposts on the planet for like 100 years, single-handedly. This one guy, George Ellery Hale, who converted his bedroom into a little laboratory with his brother and drove his mother nuts with the whirrings and the turbines and the shaking of the house and all that, and then got into astronomy. What if all of this has been made to converge to this time, this moment, this place, this instant in cosmic galactic history, because this is where that great scene in Star Trek, where the Klingons, or actually the Vulcans, predecessors of the Klingons, where they literally are passing through the system and they see Zephyrin Cockton's crude hyperdimensional spacecraft in crude warp, and they see a signature, and they stop, and the rest is Gene Roddenberry history. What is this object, and why does it have all these weird things floating around? Is it possible, and I'm going to throw out a bunch of scenarios here. We've got less than 10 minutes to the end of the program. Is it possible that someone has come to call, and those in charge of keeping us down on the farm, those in charge of our quarantine, to make sure that we never touch anybody, we never talk to anybody, we never realize our own history, we don't realize that we're more than little dust motes on this little ball of dust orbiting the sun, that those people literally tried to shoot this thing out of the sky and all those little dots are fragments because they succeeded with some kind of weapon or beam or missile and what we're seeing is the fragmentation of an artificial spacecraft. Now, that's only one of a hundred different scenarios that I can run, but the odds are that one of them is true because there's nothing about that image Nothing about that signal, nothing about that geometry that says noise in the camera, noise in the electronics, noise at NASA, and they've done their best without saying anything. That's where, you know, the, the, the news is the dog that didn't bite. NASA is putting out extraordinarily bizarre stuff, and they're not commenting. Look at Ron tracking down the history of a little ball of, of twine or string or whatever it is blowing across the Martian landscape. He found uh, uh, late in the show uh, yesterday, or after the show, I forget which, that it's not there on Sol 490. It is there on Sol 95, and it's gone again by Sol 498. And the rover hasn't moved. The cameras haven't moved. Everything is locked in place. The Hascams are looking at the ground. They're taking identical shots at somewhat different sun angles. But the object moved in a way that it cannot if Mars is in any way, shape, or form, the way NASA has been telling us it exists for tens of years. For over half a century, they basically said Mars is not the kind of place because of lack of atmosphere, lack of winds, lack of oxygen, lack of everything, to try, in the words of Elton John, to raise your kids. And yet we have something which is massive by normal standards, blowing like a tumbleweed across the sand. You can see in the frame on 498 and then compare it to 490. In 490, there's nothing there. In 495, the little twine is there. And in 498, the twine is gone, but there are little imprints in the sand. It made a little impression as it tumbled over and the edges dug into the grains, moved them apart and moved on. All of which is impossible if the Mars that NASA bequeathed us decades ago is, in fact, the truth of Mars tonight. 
So given that they dismissed as a parts of a thermal blanket, a very artificial looking thing a few weeks ago, the so-called shiny object, the fact that they've made zero on the record comment about the twine, and the fact that they suddenly radically put out an engineering kind of frankly lousy image because it's got all kinds of imperfections before they're cleaned up with the right software. And then they amplified that portion of the Jovian disk so that it's unmistakable that there's something geometric with a swirl of debris orbiting around it or close to it that appears to have been the result of some kind of offensive uh, military action. Someone tried to blow the damn thing up. Well, what scenario does that paint? That someone is trying to approach and someone else is trying to intercede and the intercessionaries are not the good guys. So we've got a few minutes left here. Let me see if I can do this. Let me give out our phone number and see if I can actually get uh, someone on the phone to comment on what I've been saying for the last several hours. Uh, the number is, of course, uh, 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. If you want to call us, if you have some ideas, if you'd like to know where this might go next, if you would like to uh, um, kind of make a comment about anything you've heard tonight, you know, feel free. If not, um, we've got about uh, six minutes if I get my clocks arranged here properly. And so let me, let me give you the final kind of coup de grace. As I started noting all these, uh, as Bill would say, quinky dinkies, the thought occurred to me that I needed to look much more deeply at Edwin, uh, I'm sorry, George Ellery Hale. And without some kind of Masonic influence, and I've been trying very hard to see if in fact he is or was a registered Mason. He died in, I think, uh, uh, 1938. I believe, uh, before the uh, 200 inch was even born. Uh, but if he was a Mason, then it would account for two stunning facts about the 200 inch that tie directly into the web experience we've all been through in the last week. Item number one, when you're putting a telescope on the mountaintop, you've got to do what's called a site survey, and you look at atmospheric conditions, you look at all kinds of uh, bizarre uh, factors, temperature, rainfall, percentage of clear days, because obviously if the days aren't clear, you're not going to see anything. So you don't want to put, you know, <clears throat> a very large telescope on a mountain in the middle of an ocean that has clouds that come over it, uh, like uh, sometimes come over uh, uh, Mauna, Lea, Mauna, Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea. <clears throat> so he did a very careful site survey, and there are photographs of him measuring the physical parameters of Palomar and ultimately deciding to put the telescope on Mount Palomar at something like 6,600 feet above sea level. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is this precise latitude of the world's largest telescope for almost 100 years was 33.3 degrees north. 333. Hyperdimensional, tetrahedral, Masonic, 333. Oh, and the focal length of the same 200-inch telescope. And what do I mean by focal length? Well, it's very simple. You take the diameter of the mirror, and you take the length from the mirror out to a point in space, you know, ahead of it, at which the light rays come to a point, and that's the focal length. 
and the focal ratio or the F ratio of the telescope is defined as dividing the diameter of the mirror into the distance to the focal point, and that gives you the ratio. Of all telescopes on Earth, 200 inch has a F3.3 focal ratio. Ladies and gentlemen, we are part of someone's plan, someone's cosmic plan, either someone's plan to keep us in prison or someone's plan to liberate us. And maybe what we're seeing on this image of Jupiter is evidence that whoever is against the plan does not want that plan to continue. And if I'm correct, the plan to liberate Homo sapiens has a very, very long route, has a very, very long history, and frankly, is about to enter a whole new chapter. And that's at the top of the news, as Fulton Lewis Jr. used to say, as seen from here. Next week, we're probably going to go back to Mars because there are very interesting things that are occurring on Mars. Um, I'm also going to get hold of Neville Thompson because I want his take on all the things we've been discussing. And I'm sorry, Robert, that we've kind of run out of time. But we'll be back here same time, same bad channel next week. And God knows what's going to happen in this intervening week. Remember, time was God's invention, so everything didn't happen at once. And time seems to be breaking down. So until next week, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.